0: I'm Brenda
1: and hi I'm Amber
0: and this is the Minority Millennial Money podcast. The contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice and neither Amber nor I nor Minority Millennial Money is engaged in the provision of legal tax or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors including lawyers and tax accountants regarding the legal tax and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. everyone. Welcome to the Minority Millennial Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the home buying process and the reason this came up was because lately we've just been hearing a lot about how the housing market all over the country is really hot and I know personally several people that are kind of rushing to get a home and we wanted to talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yes, whether or not home buying is a good decision for you.
0: Right and we've said in other episodes that there is no shame in renting, and that you can actually invest the difference of a rent payment and a mortgage payment, and probably end up about the same in the next three years, assuming you put your money in the stock market in the appropriate funds that are growing over time. So between Amber and I, we've bought homes three times. I've bought two, which now I rent out, and Amber bought one years ago and then sold it. Uh, so we wanted to go step-by-step and Amber, you can let me know if your experience was any different because we did buy in different States and some States are different as far as how the process goes. But for me, the first time around, I found a real estate agent. We looked around. I eventually settled on a condo I wanted to buy. And the first thing that happened was that I realized you don't just get a regular loan for a condo. So if it's not a standalone house and you're sharing walls with other people, you actually have to find a special mortgage broker that will give you the kind of loan that will cover that kind of property. Uh, did you buy a single-family home?
1: I bought a duplex.
0: Oh, so that's different too. Hmm.
1: Yeah, but you didn't have. Um, I didn't have to get like a special loan in Illinois.
0: Okay, I don't think that it's you have to get get a special one in Texas either for a duplex. But I've never bought. A property that is more than one housing unit. So then you talk to the mortgage broker, they look at your income, they look at your debt to income ratio, which is what does that mean Amber?
1: Well, it just means that like whatever your debt is can't be higher than the amount of money you make per year. Um,
0: Ideally it's no more than 30%. So going with our usual example of 100,000 a year, ideally you wouldn't have more than $30,000 in debt. That's including everything, your car, your student loans, your credit cards, anything. So they take everything into account, and then they also take your credit score into account. So even though, like you know, there are some people in the personal finance space that say, "Oh, you you know, don't worry about your credit score." It really does matter in the home buying
1: process. Yeah, so your then, credit score absolutely matters. I've never heard that actually. I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm really just referencing like Dave Ramsey, who will say like you can bid, you can buy a home without a credit score like, because he encourages people to not use credit at all. Right. So people, he like pushes a particular mortgage broker that will help people get a loan based on just their income statements instead of considering a credit score. And I've actually rented to a tenant who didn't have a credit score because he had never borrowed money. So I actually just asked for more of his income statements and it wasn't like he had bad credit. It wasn't like 400. It just did not exist. Literally never borrowed money. Wow. Um, I thought was impressive you know because it says something too like that you've never needed to borrow money I thought that was somewhat impressive
1: yeah I don't know I feel like if you aren't savvy enough to like know that you need to establish credit like
0: so he is an immigrant he's from France and he's, oh
1: okay that's
0: different he told me that like his community of other French people <laughs> like Thank kind of know. made fun of us and we're like Americans love to borrow money, but don't do it.
1: <laughs> well, when in Rome, um, <laughs> you should probably establish some credit, but yeah, but I, that makes sense. That makes more sense if he's an immigrant.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um, so it's not like he grew up here and he knew about credit and he just avoided it. He literally, they don't use credit in other countries the way that they use it here. Right, right. So you. do you mind talking about like your down payment and what that was like, how much he had to put down and, and why?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I actually just put down 3.5%. Um, at the time, um, I just did a regular conventional loan and actually when I first graduated from law school, that's when I bought my house. Um, my law school student loans at that time were higher than my income. And so, um, they had like a special program for lawyers and doctors who wanted to buy homes because lawyers and doctors tend to have very high debt, but also high income. And so they, um, they the bank itself actually backed my loan so yes so it wasn't like a conventional loan like literally the bank which is like a small private bank was the backer of the loan so I actually didn't have to pay private mortgage insurance and my house was really cheap it was like a hundred grand so 3.5 percent was literally thirty five (laughs) hundred dollars and my clothing costs were like I don't know, less than a thousand dollars. I think I put in total probably like 5,000 down um, on my house, but that's why I bought it because it was so cheap.
0: Right. Right. So I had a similar experience. I was offered an FHA loan, which is a first time home buyer, like assistance program. And with an FHA loan, you can have the option of doing 3.5%. But in my case, the FHA loan had a higher rate than a conventional loan. And so it was but for the conventional loan, I had to put down 5%. And so I went with the conventional loan because the rate over time would be significantly lower, like almost 1% lower. And it was only going to cost me 1.5%. And, and the first condo I bought was only 142000 right? So it wasn't that much either. I think I remember like my total cost to get the keys was a little bit over $10,000 that first time for the condo. But I skipped a couple steps because between giving them the down payment or even deciding that you want it, there's a few more steps. So initially the the seller agrees to sell it to you. Mm -hmm. And then they ask you for some earnest money, which is usually around one to 2% of the total cost. And that will go towards your down payment. But if you back out, you lose that earnest money. So I think I put like $1,500 down as earnest money. Mm -hmm. And if... You decide that you don't want it anymore, you lose that money. Right. So that's
1: go ahead. A lot of people put in the earnest money at the time that they put in the offer. So like you'll offer something on the house, and for me, I put a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars into the offer. And so then, if they accept the offer, then that thousand dollars is wrapped up into the deal.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. So for me, they didn't ask for it till like a week later. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the process of underwriting and you have to get the home inspected. The buyer pays for the inspection. And in my case, it was about $500. And you want to get like a third party inspector that's you know not working for the seller and might hide something, Mm -hmm. but also does a good thorough job and finds things that would need to be fixed before you agree to buy the house. And the inspector also is your advocate in the sense of saying like, hey, like this AC unit is like on the brink of breaking. Like you either should ask the seller to replace it or to insure it somehow for at least a year. That happened with my house where it was like, that AC unit's like almost 30 years old and it works well. But he was like, I would hate for you to buy this house and like the next week you have to replace the AC unit. Right,
1: right. You know, um,
0: did you have anything come up in your inspection?
1: I did. They had to make a lot of changes and fixes. I think the house I bought was a little bit older. Um, It was updated, but it was just older. Um, So they had to do like a new, um, there's like a new water heater. They had to do a new um, garbage disposal, like small things that they had to do.
0: Yeah. And I also have noticed that like with more technology, like the Austin city code for building homes has changed and there's new requirements but with older homes they just don't meet up they don't they don't meet the code and you just kind of have to be okay with that like obviously it's not going to have like eco-friendly ac unit or plumbing or whatever because it was built in 1992 (laughs) so that's something that comes up and then you get into the underwriting process where you basically show them everything you've ever spent (laughs) (laughs) um what was that like for you
1: it was just really stressful because they wanted documents that for one were like extremely private documents like bank statements from the past however many months they wanted to see exactly how much was in every single bank account that you had um check stubs for the past few months so it was just kind of exhausting to get all of that paperwork and to really look like oh my god someone's gonna see like I got Chipotle for two weeks straight every single day. Right. That's me.
0: Yeah, it was definitely, definitely made me feel vulnerable and like, (laughs) who's judging me, you know, Um, but, but just be prepared for that because at any point they can be like, Hey, we need this document. Hey, we need this document. I remember there was a, an issue with me because um, I had let someone borrow money and they had paid me back in the months prior and so there was like this mysterious, you know, three thousand dollars or whatever it was. And so the underwriters were like, "Where is this from? Where did you know?" Like they were just real suspicious about it. And I was like, "Um, somebody was paying me back. I don't know what else." To me. <laughs> like we never had a written agreement. It was just like verbal. And they were like, "Okay, <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay."
0: I was like, I'm literally a nurse. Like, what kind of deals do you think I'm making? I, I don't know. It, was, it was, definitely feels like they're prying into your life. So then this is a whole process where these people go through all your finances and they run all these calculations to make sure that you would be able to pay this mortgage.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: And then they give you an estimate, but you don't really get your mortgage official number payment until the day that you sign. Mm-hmm. And really that is just... The payment that you're making for this upcoming year based on the taxes that were calculated when you closed right. so for example like my payment has gone up steadily because the value of the home has gone up steadily and the taxes have gone up accordingly mm-hmm. um did you have that happen at all like where your payment changed a lot?
1: No I mean the taxes were so cheap um, I think the taxes were like two thousand dollars a year or fifteen hundred a year um, okay so it didn't really go up, maybe okay. a few dollars.
0: You're lucky then. So, I also wanted to talk about like all the associated expenses that come with a home because I feel like a lot of people will make this argument like, if you're renting, you're just throwing money away and you're paying the same when you're renting as when you're owning a home. And it's like, mm, no, there's like a lot more that comes with a home, for example. My rent currently is only like $150 to, $100, $150 to $200 less than my mortgage, but I'm actually saving closer to $500 a month by living in an apartment, than my house, because of all the expenses that come with the house. Let me tell you about them. So there's pest control. I have to pay that quarterly, right? Because of, a lot of bugs getting on in the house. there's lawn care. I have to pay someone every two weeks to come do the lawn. And then I pay a weed service because the weeds are out of control. Then I have to pay the security system, right? Because it's like, it's a fixed cost for the next five years, it was a contract. Then I pay a maintenance service that comes and cleans out like the AC... Um, vents and the washer and dryer vents and they check all my appliances so I pay $40 a month for that and then quarterly they come check everything and if I have a problem I kind of outsource the problem to them and they take care of it so that's an expense that I'm willing to make but that's another expense there's internet there's increased utilities costs because you have a bigger space that you're cooling or heating Mm -hmm. there's the gas bill there's the HOA And that's it for now. But in the mortgage payment alone, you're paying principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. So the insurance is another thing that ideally you shop around for every year. Um, I have a guy who shops around for it for me, but there is something about the mortgage payment, which I wanted to mention, which is that in the first almost half of your 30-year loan, you're really paying them all the interest. The majority of your payment is going towards the interest of the loan, and you don't start paying the principal, which was the original cost of the home, until about halfway into the 30 years, depending on the amortization schedule, and that's something that you get in a big stack of papers where you sign your life away when you take a mortgage.
1: So many things to sign. Oh, my gosh.
0: So many things to sign. Um, But what else do you want to say about, because I know you had a particularly difficult experience and you ended up selling the house. So I want you to talk about the extra expenses and why renting is better for you right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just awful. Um, And also like, it was just me doing it myself. So it was really hard. And I was a, you know, first time lawyer. And so I was working a lot of hours and it was really hard to uh, keep up with what was going on at the house. So like I owned a duplex, but I owned half of it. So I owned my half and then another woman owned the other half. So I actually didn't buy the entire duplex. Um, So a lot of the things we shared, like, so for example, when you were talking about pest control, we had like a um, under basement thingy. I forget what it's called. It's called like a a crawl space. We had a crawl space and um, we found out that there was mold growing in the crawl space under the house. Yes. So we had to pay like someone to come out and there were like bugs and rats under there as well. So we yeah. had to come, ha- we had to pay someone to come out and go underneath the house, I think a couple of times a year to spray the molds under the house. And it was like, I want to say five or $600 each time they came. Yeah. So I had to, luckily my neighbor was really nice and we were worked together, but we both paid half. But she could have been like, where's the mold? Is it on your part of the duplex? Is it on my part? You know what I mean? Like people get like that when you're, when you're neighbors. Um, so that was one big problem I had. I had a lot of, um, ants. I had like an ant outbreak. Um, and I had to pay someone to come in and, and spray. Um, the water heater caught on fire because (laughs) I was just talking about how you know, I have to get a new water heater because that was something that they found in the home inspection. Well, the prior owner didn't pay anyone to install it. He installed it himself. So he did, he did it wrong. Oh,
0: as a requirement of them fixing it for you to yes. save money, he just installed it himself. Yes, Because all of a sudden he was a water heater expert.
1: Correct. He <laughs> not a licensed plumber. So he did something with the wires and it caught on fire. Yes, yes. So I had to call someone to fix that.
0: Wait, so did you have a fire hydrant or like, how did this go?
1: Like, I literally literally saw the spark and it caught on fire. And then I turned off the water heater and I just sat there and it was just like everywhere. So it just went out on its own.
0: But you didn't have, um, you didn't have like anything burn.
1: The water burnt the hole inside of the water heater. Okay. So basically I had to install a new water heater. Or that part of it had to be reinstalled, which cost hundreds of dollars. Then (laughs) I had, um, there was an electrical outlet in my bathroom that also caught on fire, um, like a small fire. So I had to have the electricians come out and look at that. Um, Then I had an issue where my heating and air bill was like $500 a month for the house. And it was only like a thousand square feet. It was only like 1200, 1400 square feet. So I was like, so there was something wrong with the furnace. So in order to try to fix it, I got the house (laughs) re-insulated. So I paid for someone to come out and insulate it. Well then it still didn't fix the problem. So um, Mm -hmm. after I moved out and I rented it out, the furnace completely blew. So I had to buy a new furnace and that was, and then they needed to install Even it. though you had
0: re-insulated, you still had to buy a new furnace? Yes. How much is a furnace? I, I don't know.
1: So when, they, when run. they looked at the furnace and they realized they needed to also add a heat pump, um, all in all, it was $10,000. Yeah. And by the way, insurance doesn't cover any of the things that I just said. So I had to pay out of pocket. So I've spent at least, oh, and then there was also these, really huge trees that were, like, on the house that was pushing it into the ground. So I had to get those removed. <laughs> wow. So all wow. in all, um, I mean, that's not even the half of it. I had issues with the patio door. The lock broke on it. I had to fix that. It was just, I, I mean, I could go on for days. I ended up spending between twenty and $30,000 on this house. And it was only worth $100,000. And- Were you
0: able to sell it for 120 or 130?
1: I was able to sell it for a couple more. I think I was, so I bought it at 117.5 and I sold it at 119. So I only got $2,000 more and I had already put in, I basically, I got back like a few thousand dollars and I had put in like twenty thirty thousand. 30,000. So basically I lost money. <laughs> And the funny part was so my mortgage at the house was $500 and um you know with all the taxes all the fees and all of that stuff it ended up coming out to like 900 a month right and the rent i was paying before i moved in there was 750 so it was just like um completely not worth it like i spent way more money than i needed to so
0: yeah yeah so Consider that, listeners, a story in being very careful about what you get into and also to not rush into homeownership. I mean, people are like, oh, wow, you have two rental properties. I'm like, yeah. And like in Austin, like the prices are getting so high that they don't meet the 1% rule. The 1% rule is that you should be able to rent the place out for 1% of the mortgage price. So like if I bought my house at 240, which at that time I didn't buy it for renting out, but even at that that time, I should have been able to rent it out for 2400. And I really can't, I mean, I can maybe rent it out for 2200 because I left it furnished, but at this point, like Austin is just not a great place to buy as far as to invest. And at this point, like prices are so inflated that I would be afraid that I would be buying something for four hundred thousand, and in five years it's going to be worth two fifty, and then you lost twenty or thirty. But in that case, someone could lose one hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
1: Right, and And I will
0: say, stuck. Then you're stuck in it.
1: Right. I will say, like if I would have lived in the house, so I only actually lived in the house for like a year and a half. So I don't think it was worth it because I only spent that time. If I had stayed in the house for ten years. And I could have worked out all of those kinks and then maybe not had as many problems, then maybe it would have been worth it. It would have caught up or would have evened out.
0: Right. So there is also that, right? When you buy, do you see yourself staying there at least five years? I mean, I bought my condo in 2017. And so this year it's four years, but I haven't lived in it for the last two and a half. I only lived in it for a year and a half and I was fortunate that I was able to rent it out, but if you don't plan to stay in your city or you're in a career field that requires you to be very mobile, then is it really a good idea? Right. right. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to address a question that we got through the Instagram and it was regarding the home buying process. And uh, somebody asked, how do you stay motivated to save for a, an investment probably, let me see, let me see exactly what he said. How do you convince yourself to save for a goal that seems so distant? So I thought that was interesting because I I asked myself, well, A, I can see how, you know, if I was in my mid-20s now and maybe just starting out with my career, buying a home probably does feel super distant, Mm -hmm. right? And I guess my answer to that would be, I would just assess if it's something that I really want to make a financial goal, Mm -hmm. right? Because 30, 50 years ago, it was very possible, but now I frankly, like if I was 25 today in 2021 and and was renting, I probably wouldn't even put homeownership as a goal on my list of things to do.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm not sure what people's obsession is with homeowning. Um, but maybe I'm just bitter. But uh, (laughs) no, but um, I mean, like, I think that the question that was asked of us is basically a question you can ask about all of the things we've talked about on the podcast, right? Like, how do you stay motivated to invest? How do you stay motivated to put $20,000 in your, you know, in your 401k, like all of it is really hard. And I think you just have to have a mindset where you're playing the long game, and you're not, uh, sort of engaging in short term pleasure um, with your money, and that maybe like on the long term you want to be a millionaire or you want to um, have money for retirement and, and be comfortable and financial security so to me long term financial security is probably one of my highest priorities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so saving and investing is uh, it, you have to do it basically in order to to secure that so
0: yeah. And honestly, like once you automate it, it's just second nature. Um, I don't even, I, I'm being interviewed for another podcast in the next couple of weeks and they wanted to know like my money story and my money journey. And I was like, I just don't think I'm that unique or special. Like, I don't understand what you want me to talk about, except like that I set this up like years ago and it's been growing steadily. And so, and I've created the habit of living my life in a way that my investments and my savings come first Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and then i i not that i think that any spending should be associated with guilt but everything that's left over is for me to enjoy and so i don't want people to think that we're like oh you need to be like terribly frugal because you and i both like going out to eat to nice places and traveling and doing things that will create good memories right we're not like oh I'm not going to spend five hundred dollars on this trip because I could invest it. Well, it's like no, I already met my goal for the month for right. what I want to invest, and so the rest of my money I can enjoy without worrying. Yeah. But until those things are automated and set up, you are just playing with fire, and you're not you're not appreciating like that. You're young, like, and I really want to emphasize like I didn't start this till I was 26, and I wish I had started when I was 21.
1: Right. Right.
0: Right. Like I would have set myself up even better. And I posted on Twitter the other day that, you know, I used an an investment growth calculator. And even if all I do, if I don't put anything in a 401k for the rest of my life and I just let my current investments grow as long as I max out a Roth at $6,000, which that will increase throughout the years. And I put $500 in the stock market every month. I'll have $3.3 million when I'm 59. Mm -hmm right? And at 59, I can start withdrawing from all my retirement accounts. Right. So I don't even need to do that much anymore. So if you're under 25 right now, please volunteer and we will come help you.
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really millionaire.
0: <laughs> yes. You could be a millionaire even way before 59.
1: Right. Right. I mean, I talk about that in my latest book too. Like literally anyone can be a millionaire.
0: Right. And I don't know why we have this concept that it's so unattainable because right. it's really, it's simple. It's not easy.
1: Right. Right.
0: But it's very simple. And as far as the question goes, you stay motivated also by, by having friends that are doing the same thing. Right. I definitely feel like, you know, you're one of my good friends and some of my closest friends are also kind of have similar financial mindsets and so like if you're hanging out with people that are always like yoloing and like aren't saving (laughs) you know they're just like in cabo once a month and like all of their money goes towards like the today and the now then maybe, maybe new friends
1: right right
0: that makes a big difference
1: Yeah. I mean, and I feel like it's good to have people to reach out to where you can be like, oh, what do you think about this? Like, what if I take time off? Like, what do you think? People who are in like the personal finance world that know all the things, you know, it's really happy. It's really good to like have someone to balance things.
0: Right. And I think that most people are pretty balanced and they make, they make personal finance work for them, which is what it's about. Right. As long as you have figured out what the goal is that you want to meet and you're working backwards from that and you set up the systems to do it, then, then you can really enjoy your life knowing that you're not going to depend on social security when you're 65, which I just read an article that by the time we're 65, we're going to get 25% less than what people get now. Yeah. Like already you're already, not that I depend on social security at all, but you're only going to get 75% of what you should have gotten at best. Right. So just well, consider 25% of whatever you're paying into social security is not coming back to you.
1: Right. I mean, I already told my financial advisor not to even consider adding social security into my portfolio because I'm, That's good. I've, I do not trust that I will get social security.
0: Yeah. We're not counting on it. All right. So that's it for the home buying process, the good, the bad and the ugly, and we're looking forward to chatting with y'all on Instagram or Twitter if you have any questions and let us know if you want us to help you even if you are over 25, whatever age you are.
1: Yeah. We'll
0: take on anyone. And you could be anonymous too. So take care y'all.
1: Bye.